Yesterday I had to do a service downtown on Broadway for the uh, 9-11 and for Memorial Day weekend. And in doing some research about it, I was surprised at what I learned about how many people died for this country's freedom. It blew me away that 1.4 million people died for this country's freedom, and another 1.5 million came back wounded, scarred, maimed for this freedom that we are so delighted to have. And I think about that sometimes because especially, you know, it's a lot of times people are more concerned about picnics than we are about thinking about that. But really what surprised me the most and my research, and that was that out of all the wars that we fought, and even the war of World War I and World War II combined did not have as many deaths as the Civil War. Over 600,000 soldiers, Americans, Confederate and Union, died in that war. Brothers and sisters, brothers against brothers. And here today, as we look at the scriptures, and I was thinking about that because oftentimes some of the greatest wounds that we can get come from those who are close to us. David said in Psalm 55, he says, it's not my enemy who's the problem. It's you who I go to church with, he says, is my problem. We remember what Jesus was talked about in John chapter 2, where it says that Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew it was on their heart. Oftentimes our wounds are the deepest because of those who are within. And now today, if we remember, Peter has written his second epistle or second letter. The first letter, if you remember, it was because of the persecution, the enemies from outside, and Nero was persecuting the church and how to survive in this great persecution of death and hatred towards Christians who were falsely accused. But now Peter, several years later, writes the second letter because of a bigger concern that he has, and that is the false teachers that have crept into the church, brothers and sisters in the church who are dividing the church and destroying it. And we've seen this, haven't we? We see that in marriages. We see that in churches. We see that in, um, in businesses where it divides, and there many are divided, and, and, and how they, they destroy each other in the process. And here today, Peter's concerned about the church. Down in Southeast Asia, there are these false doctrines that are being implemented by these false teachers. And what Peter does, and he helps us, is give us some modus operandi, or their MO, uh, so to speak, which is their mode of operating. And he talks to us today about the mode of operating of these false teachers. He gives us the mode of operation of how God deals with it, and how God deals with the teachers, and how he also deals with the righteous. And so today, as we begin our word, we look at it and says, their modus operandi, and that we see the false prophets also arose among the people, just as they were also in the false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master or Jesus who bought them their salvation, bringing swift destruction upon them. Then, he says, many will follow the sensuality and become because of them, the way of the truth is maligned. 
First, he talks about these destructive heresies. And we can see that. You know, in the world, one of the easiest things to do is to make fake art. There are machines now that are so incredibly good of making and reproducing prints that it's hard to even tell the difference between an actual original and a print. And what Satan does, he's the originator of the imitation. He takes, oftentimes, he'll take what God says and just turn it a little bit. Or try to replicate what God does and use it in our lives. And the nation of Israel had that. And they followed idols. And Elijah exploded. And Jeremiah exploded. Because he saw these people buying into false objects that were not pleasing to God. And the same thing happened with the apostles. And if you know anything, folks, about cults. In our society today, one of the things that they will do is they will use the same language you and I use in church. They will use the same terms, but they will give them different meanings that you don't understand. Like, for instance, one group says the atonement. Now, the atonement for us is Jesus Christ spilling his blood to die for our sin. And then there they use the same word atonement, but it's at one that we are made one together with all the world. And that's how they change it. Well, here, the false teachers were doing similar things. They were trying to deceive the people. And we know how that deception works. We saw it early on in the book of Genesis, where we see the false is given. I can tell you how sometimes people will try to slip in the false. One time when I was in New Jersey, back in the early 80s, I had just been a pastor for about four or five years. And if you remember, there was a cult that was belarging, looming all over campuses. You'd run into them in airports, and they would sell you flowers. And there was the Moonies. And what had happened was, and I realized, and I was not the only pastor in New Jersey and in New York that had this happen to. In fact, one had this happen to them out in Long Island, one of our Reformed pastors. And what happened was... This couple came to our church, and they were very interested in joining the church and being part of it. And they were smiling, and they said they wanted to get married. And so we sat down, and we talked to them, and they had all the religious words right. And then we had the wedding, but they only had two other people, and they wanted to take pictures of me. And they did. And it was done, and then all of a sudden I found out that I was being used, my picture was being used on moon stationary saying, look, Pastor Dave Henyon supports us because he was, I was hugging two Moonies and that he, he supports our theology. This is what happens. This is how devastating and how diabolical it can happen. And, and, and we had the same problem that went up at the cemetery, uh, cemetery, seminary that he had up in Tarrytown, New York. And he used other ministers to say that we promoted their theology when in all actuality it was totally a false and we were going against it. See how Satan can use you or I was a naive young pastor who didn't realize that that's what they were about. They never told me they were Unification Church people. They were never told me they were Moonies and they didn't want to because they wanted to use me for their ability to promote their religion. And you see the Bible here speaks about that. These pseudo teachers, 
false teachers that try to get us to, to believe what they want us to believe rather than what want us to believe what they are rather than what, what we really truly believe. And one of the things that happens in the church, and it's going on in our church right now, and it's going on in the church universal throughout the Protestantism and even in the Catholic Church, is that the doctrines that we hold true and sound are being rattled and being destroyed. But even people who are well-meaning people. You know, in the book of Revelations, it says, anyone who adds or takes away from the scripture is declared anathema. And there are many people who I know who believe the Bible and are very strong Bible-believing Christians, but they add. In fact, it's funny that in Genesis, Eve added to the scriptures. God said to Eve, do not take of any other fruit and eat it. But he did not say, you, don't, you can't touch the tree. And she said, you can't touch the tree either. She added to it. And here, what we find is that in the church, there are wonderful, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians who add to the Bible. I was reading an article by a fellow by the name of Dr. Richard Meyer. He's the Dean um, of uh, Pastoral Ministries at Master's Seminary in Los Angeles, which is uh, part of John MacArthur's church. And he said, there are, for instance, imposing additional things not found in the Bible, like card playing and dancing, or well-meaning to say that there's only one translation, which is the King James translation, rather than the other translations that we have that we've learned a lot and we can grow from. And then there's also those things forbidding entertainment, not to watch movies, or, or some of those other things, even the Passion of Christ or a Christian movie. And then also, too, keeping Sabbath day rules. I can remember having a debate with a person who was a Seventh-day Adventist who believed we as Christians are committing sin every Sunday when we worship rather than worshiping on Saturday. You see, he's speaking about these things. And then he also talks about outlawing instruments in church. And there are churches that outlaw instruments that the Bible says, shake your tambourines, play the lyre, all those things that are biblical but they're trying to add to it. One church in East Texas has a barber shop in it if you have too much of long hair, and they'll give you a haircut before church so you look pleasing to God. And that's, again, adding to the scriptures. But then there's also, on the other side of the coin, is liberalism. And that takes away from scripture. And we all know, you know how it is, that we believe that the scripture is divinely inspired from God. He spoke to men and they wrote it down in our Bibles. And that we, they brought together the Bible. These men believe that this is a book that's written by men who try to visualize and understand what God is about. And so one year they got together in the Jesus Seminar. And they had four little beads that they used. And what they would do, if it was red, it's exactly what Jesus said. If it was pink, it was, well, maybe Jesus said it. And then if it was gray, uh, that they were pretty sure it wasn't Jesus. But if it was black, it was not Jesus at all. 
And these 80 scholars got together in Chicago at this Jesus seminar, and they began to evaluate the scriptures. And what happened was 80% of the New Testament they put in black, that Jesus never said that. And only 20% made it either pink or red of the things that Jesus said. And you see, these types of things affect the church. What we find is that there are some Christians who don't believe the Bible. They believe it's a good book, it's more. Thomas Jefferson, our found, one of our founding fathers, great guy. But he took apart the Bible and cut it up with scissors. And he made his own Bible, and it's known as the life and morals of Jesus. And any miracle that Jesus did, he cut it out. And he only did the morals and values of Jesus in his book. And there are other people who do the same thing. And you see, it's a shift from the truth to what God's word really is. It's the living word of God, inspired by God to direct us to salvation and to life everlasting. But then there's a second thing that Peter talks about. So Peter talks about these destructive heresies, these false teachings, and people taking away or adding to the scriptures. Now he talks about sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth has been maligned. And we see that in the great presentations that are made and the great shows that are put on and, and how easy it is to get away, though, from the teaching of the truth. And Peter is saying they're sensual. They, they present it so well and so smoothly. And they present a gospel that really is not the gospel. And it leaves Jesus' out, and it leaves Jesus' ways out of morality and right and wrong. In fact, their faulty teaching leads themselves to faulty actions in their own lives, even the preachers. How many preachers have we seen that have fallen into sin? We've seen even more of it as it intensifies in all these large churches that are coming, and some of the pastors are falling into sin. And it's destructive to the church and the sensuality. You see, Peter's talking about now this attractiveness that may not teach the truth and, and, and fudge on the morals and righteousness of God. And then he says, there's a third motive of apparatus that they do. And that is their greed. They will exploit you with false words and their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And he says, behind the cloak of their covetousness, they preach a gospel that draws people in to send money. And their motives is not so much the preaching of the gospel, but money. Jesse Duplantis. Oh, he needed a $55 million jet so he could bring the gospel to the world. And he was making it as if you did not give, that you were not against Satan and the work that he's doing in the world. That was his pitch from the pulpit on worldwide TV. And you see, that's what Peter says. He uses these words in Greek that means a great swelling of the words. Almost if we were interpreted plastic words to get what he wants. How many of us remember the bakers and what they did with the money that they did? 
and how smooth it was in an operation that they had. 158 million inappropriate, inappropriations of Jim Baker. And how did he find out in 1987 when he was in, convicted of the sin and crime that he did? He had 47 bank accounts. He had five or six mansions, luxury cars, air-conditioned dog houses. We all remember those ugly things that were spoken about. And here, as a young couple, when they started out, you could ask Kathy, Steve's wife, and she could tell you they were well-intentioned gospel leaders. But now the money got to them, and it became all about the money and less about the truth. And the tragedy of it is they even have a board of people who are strong, solid, believing pastors who are supposed to guide them, but because they were on staff and they were making good money now as pastors, nobody wanted to rock the boat and change it. And so therefore, Heritage Village and Jim Baker got away with a long time before somebody said no more. You see, this is the whole thing. You know, it's like counterfeit produces counterfeit. It's like the guys who counterfeited and their machine printed out $18 bills. And they went out and they wanted to break those so that they could get the real money. And so they gave them to down south and they said to some dumb guy, here, here's $18. He said, what do you want, two nines or, or three sixes? You see, because the false. And here the Bible here says to us, the greed sometimes take them, and how easy it is to get caught into that. And that's why it's so important that we look for somebody. You know, in the next three years, I plan to retire. And I want to stay at this church and help this church, but we want somebody who really believes the word, who preaches the word, and will show us the word and not pull all this other fancy stunts we want to be able to hold to the truth at this church. Now, here's the deal. Peter doesn't stop there. He said, this is how they work. They enter in false teaching. They also are sensual. They also do exploit by greed. But now watch this. He says, but their day is coming. Judgment will come. And one of the things the false teachers of that day said, oh, don't worry about it. God is not going to judge and Peter chooses three carefully selected case studies for the church and for those churches to understand that God means business when he judges. You know, we don't want to hear that. I mean, how many pastors actually speak about hell in our world today? At a conference, uh, the pastor from, who's the head of Dallas Seminary, Asked pastors, how many of them spoke about hell in the last year? A group of Baptists and only three guys raised their hand. Unbelievable. And yet the judgment of God is very much a part of who God is. You see, God's judgment is there. Because he expects the purity. And the only way you can be pure is by washing the judgment away in our lives through Jesus Christ. And that God only can be God if he judges the wrong and he takes care of it. That's why the cross is so important. Jesus didn't come to help us wink at sin. 
Jesus came to take care of the justice of God. That's why Christ came to earth. He came so that the justice of God would be resolved, that you and I don't have to be guilty for our sin, that Jesus paid for that sin and satisfied the justice of God and then gave us eternal life and gave us the opportunity for purity. And you see, God's justice will be met. And we see how Peter's logic works. The Holy Spirit gives Peter to say, For it did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now we all know, Satan tried to overtake heaven because he thought he was better than God and he was thrown out. He was the angel that was thrown out of heaven along with a third of the angels that are demons today amongst us. And he threw them out. And in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel, we find this out in Ezekiel chapter 28. But it didn't stop there. There was a group of angels who wanted to get more debacle and more sinful. And so what they did is they went as men into the world and crossed the barrier from being an angel, a spiritual being, to being a human being. And then also had sex with the women uh, that were beautiful of the world. And, and so when God judged them, he took them, and the Bible says he locked them up. He put them in chains, as Peter shows us here. And he says that they were locked up, waiting for judgment because their sin was so dastardly that God has locked up right now these fallen angels. What caused the angels to rebel, what caused Satan to rebel first, was his pride. But it was not only that, not only did they fall, but then these angels fell and God took them and he holds them right now. They're chained up in Tartus, which is called hell, waiting for their final judgment. The final day when Christ returns and he will judge all the earth and all the sin for all time. And Christ will redeem and take his redeemed home in heaven. And until that time, these angels are in pits of darkness reserved for judgment, the final judgment. They're already judged already. And the Bible here, you know, the Bible speaks about hell 162 times. Jesus speaks about it three times more than he does of heaven. And the people of that day say, oh no, God's not going to judge. Peter is saying, no, if he did not stop judging the angels that he created which were messengers for him. You think he's going to stop for you and for your false teaching? He said they're going to be judged. Then the second stage study he does, he talks about Noah. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, which was his family, when he brought a flood when the world of the ungodly. And here we have the flood incident, the huge deluge, the cataclysmic event where God wipes the earth clean because of the ungodliness that was going on. And the flood was a universal scope. He punished the ungodly and wiped them out. Noah preached for 120 years, warning people to change and repent, and they would not. God gave them that long a time as Noah built the ark. And still, they didn't listen. And only Noah's family 
was spared. And here we see the truth of God. That if you don't repent, you will experience God's disaster and judgment upon you. What a wonderful relief for us as Christians. But then he gives us the thirst case study. You see, he's trying to convince these people that God doesn't willy-nilly and wink around about the sin that they're committing. It's very real. And his judgment is very real. And he works and says, Sodom and Gomorrah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them as an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. Again in Genesis chapter 13. We see it. We see it very plain. The flagrance of immorality that was going on. God sent three angels to Lot to preserve that community and say repent and get ready to leave Sodom. And the men of that city were so immoral, they came to the house. They wanted them to bring out these angels that they thought were men, and they wanted to rape them. They wanted to have their way with them. And Lot protected them. And we hear of how Abraham prays, intercessing for Lot and the Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays several times, Lord, if there are but 45 people, will you spare it? But there are not 45. Lord, if there are not 30 people, will you spare it? But there are not 30. Lord, if there are but 10 people, will you spare it? And he says to Abraham, there are not. Only eight and it's Lot and his family. These false teachers. And these false, ungodly people crept in in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we find here, that God had had enough. And he said, I'm going to take it out. Warn them, tell them, Lot, Get out of town. And we see sadly that Lot's wife looked back and turns into the pillar of salt because of what she was missing and wanted to see. And he told not to turn back, but to get out of town and run. And she turned her round to watch and was turned into a pillar of salt. But you see, that's not the end of the story. Peter says God's judgment is severe. And it's going to take place. But God is also a God of mercy. Who delivers. Who sends his own son, Jesus Christ. To die. And what we see here is God did not spare the ancient world again, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world to the ungodly. God did not pull Noah out right away. Noah stayed in that for 
120 years preaching. Jesus, when he preached, prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, what does he say? He says, I don't pray that you take them out of this world, Lord. But what did he pray? He prayed, Lord, that you would keep them from the evil of this world. That's what he prayed. That we could be standing as lights in a dark world. Because that's what he had. And God delivered him from the judgment. God delivered him from, by the ark. And we are so privileged to be delivered by the ark, Jesus Christ, who saved us. And that we're in this world of craziness, but yet here we are to proclaim the truth of God. And then even Lot, lukewarm Lot. You see, Lot was really lukewarm. He wasn't as faithful. The Bible says here that he rescued righteous Lot because of God's righteousness. Oppressed by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men for by which what he saw and heard the, that righteous man while living among them felt righteous soul tormented day how uh, uh, tormented day after day by the lawless deeds can you imagine how filthy he felt living in that disgusting sinful world and then the lord knows to rescue the godly from the temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment peter summarizes says you see what god does god can keep the righteous secure and yet he also will deal with the judgment. And here we see that. Even in Lot, who was lukewarm. It's amazing. If you read the account of Lot, you can see how easy it is for us to fall and to basically get ourselves into something that we never intended. In Genesis chapter 13, we see how Lot compromises and is casual about sin and it becomes a catastrophe for his life. You see, in verse 10 of chapter 13, it draws a picture of us and he sees Sodom and he's beautiful. How often times does Satan draw the beautiful picture and, and how beautiful it'll feel to follow his way. And as you see, then in chapter 13, verse 11, he sees he walks towards Sodom. Now he's getting caught by the vision of it, and he starts walking towards it. And then in verse 12, it says, he lived near it. He set up his tents near Sodom. And then finally, in 19.1, in we find him sitting at the gate of Sodom. He's living in it now. And you know what? Look at what Peter says in verse 7. That it says that he was obsessed by filthy conduct. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He was disgusted by him. But he was in it. Some Christians find themselves in things that they never imagined themselves to be. Because they've allowed it to creep in. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, 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 very easy to get seduced in to it. And that's what happened. And he had no mission. 
Even with Abraham praying, only eight people were saved, not even ten, because only his family got on the ark with him. And Lot was cold righteous, but God really spared him. And so today, as we leave here today, some points to think about. Number one, to look at our lives and evaluate them and say, have I compromised my life? Are some of the teachings and stuff that I hear compromising me or the things I'm watching and taking part in causing me to get drawn closer to the Sodom in my own life? We need to repent of that. Evaluate our lives and say, no, Lord, I don't want that. Take that from me. Help me to walk away from that. Then be second to be very cautious about the things that we listen to. Even the bestsellers in Christian books sometimes do not have Christian teachings. I can remember going into a Christian bookstore one time here and pointing out to the head of the department in the store that they were selling not a Christian book, but a, a book of um, uh, New Age by Melody Beattie, which was a New Age book that was totally contrary to the Word of God and bringing in uh, uh, Hinduism. And the person said, well, we just put out whatever they send us. You don't leave a publisher to make that decision. Some of the self-help books are helpful, but we've got to be careful that there are things, and that's why we learn from the Word of God, because some of the things they put in there, they may have a verse wrapped around them, but they're not Christian theology. They're not good Christian teaching, and they contradict. And we need to be prudent about them. We need to have a healthy skepticism when we go to even Christian books today, because some of the false teaching gets smuggled in. And that we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. This is as old as the Reformation. That whenever you see somebody quoting a Scripture, make sure they're quoting it in the right way. And that we have to be very careful that we don't become sleepy spiritually. You and I both know it's easy to kind of fall asleep and just let things go by and not catch them and not evaluate them. And I know we need to keep our eyes fixed on the scriptures and at what we take in and what we take into our hearts. I was cracking up. I was reading a story the other day written by this dad who had two teenage girls. They just turned teens and their girlfriends were going to go to the movies. And the father looked up the movie as a good dad would and he's checking. He said, no, there's nudity in there and there's uh, immorality that I don't want you girls to be part of right now. I don't think this is good for you at this stage of the game. And they were angry at him. They were torqued. And they're sitting in the living room pouting and he's sitting there and watching this pout. And he smells that his wife has made some brownies. And he says, he said, girls, let's make a truce. I'm going to get some brownies out of the kitchen. And he gives them these juicy, black, chocolate, thick brownies. You know, the kind that you really gain weight on. 
And he said, Mom made these delicious brownies and she poured in sugar and she had this great flour and she got this real thick chocolate. But you know what? I told her I'd help her. And so I went into the yard and I went and took a little bit, tiny bit, of soupy, our dog's dung, and I mixed it in the batter. And they took their plates and threw them. Oh, Dad, how gross! We can't eat this. He said, well, you can, because I'm only teasing you. But I want you to get the point. That that little thing that you think about that moving is the same thing as you taking into your mouth that little incremental piece of dung and eating it. And they said, oh, Dad. Ah. And they didn't go. You see, that's what it's like with us. False teachers can come. We can hear things that begin to sound good, but maybe not real good. And we need to be able to discern that. No, we know there's been groups of people who've fallen for false teachings. I was amazed at the different kinds of people that fell for Moon's teachings that were bright people who gave up careers to, to follow him and to sell flowers. I was reading about a man in 1955 who was a Methodist preacher who out of Indianapolis became very disgruntled with the church and decided to move the church in a different direction. And he wanted to take it and make it into a mixture of Christianity and, and socialism. Pentecostalism even, in fact. He even did some miracles, supposedly. And he moved his church to Northern California. And in 1961, he changed his denomination to the Disciples of Christ Church. But he wouldn't stop there. The church began to grow and it was six, over 3,000 people and they were helping a lot of people but then he decided he wanted to make it even more communal setting and moved it down to South America to a place called Guyana. And there he began to preach and have this communal setting. People joined up and went but then the government began to hear things from relatives. And they sent a government official, a senator from California, there. And Congressman Ryan went to Jonestown. And what they saw there made them fearful. And as they were trying to leave the airport, Senator Ryan and his five other colleagues were shot and killed on the airport, leaving Jonestown. And then that leader, Jim Jones, had everybody drink his Kool-Aid. And when 
the news came back of the senator's shooting, the army put together a group of military to go down and deal with that. And in the process, showed up in Jonestown and found 914 people dead. 276 children dead. And the major who was in charge of the cleanup was astounded when he said, do you know what? We searched that whole compound and we did not find one Bible. And he said, it all became centered around Jim Jones, the false teaching. And we thank God that God has provided through us as he shows us through Peter that he has given us the victory and the deliverance and the tools for us to see these false teachings coming our way. And that we have the tools of victory with the word of God and the Holy Spirit and as we desire to learn what God has to say rather than men. And that we need to do it with vigilance, folks. And we need to tell people God has judgment but he also has wonderful grace and mercy to forgive if you just grab it. That these things you're not to follow, but follow God and his word and trust it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for providing for us so much wealth in the scriptures for us to follow. And I ask you, Father God, as these folks go out every day, there's so many voices calling from the TV set to our phones to the internet. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll protect them. And they will continue to look into your word and trust your word. And that by your Holy Spirit, you will bring to our minds and our eyes safety and security. So that we don't fall into the foolish praise of false teaching the foolishness of sinful behavior, the foolishness of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that we can walk in your way. Jesus, we need you. We need your power to do that in our personal lives. And it's through Jesus Christ we boldly pray this. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.